Uh, my name is Adam, one of the pastors here. It's a great privilege to be together. I, I just have one question for you as you're getting settled there, okay? And the question is this, where will you be 23 hours from now? Where will you be? Apoc Eclipse 2017, where will you be? Will you, with 10 million others, will you try to find your way into the path of totality? Or will you settle like I'm gonna settle? I'm gonna go up on my roof and I'm gonna settle for 99% coverage, okay, of the eclipse. That's where I'll be. Do you have your, do you have your solar gazer glasses? You got those? They ran out this week. People were fighting over them. There were bidding wars going on on Craigslist, going to the highest bidder, and so you get your glasses. Just as a side note, I have a pair up here right now, and after the service, if you want these, come up. I'll give them to the highest bidder, so there you go. <laughs> you need your solar gazers. Hey, today we'll be in two places, so get your Bible out. Ushers are coming. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. And you're going to open to 1 Peter chapter 1, and then later we're going to go to Romans 8. And we'll finish out our time in Romans 8. So turn in the word. And today I want to assure you, we will gaze at the sun. And I mean this in all sincerity. We will gaze uninhibited at the sun. Uh, and there will be nothing blocking the view as we look at the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. And, and what a joy it'll be to do it. I hope you're ready to grow in the Lord. As you're turning today, I'm going to tell you a story that I think will illustrate powerfully our focus for today's sermon. It's a true story and it goes like this. In 1984, Avianca Airlines jet flight number 011 crashed while it was flying over Europe. It was a Boeing 747, it was a passenger flight, and every seat was filled. And during descent, as the plane descended into Madrid, it made contact with one mountain and then with a second mountain before it hit the ground and literally disintegrated. All 19 crew members, as well as 164 out of 173 passengers, were instantly killed. As they always do when these things happen, they went in to try to find the voice recorder, the, what they call the black box, and they found it. And when they found it, they listened to what was on the tape. And they listened in horror to the minute or so right before the plane hit the mountain. As the navigation system over the airplane sent an electronic voice ringing through the cabin. Here's what they heard. Terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up. And inexplicably, inexplicably the pilot said, okay, okay, shut up and he flipped off the switch and turned off the warning voice. And the plane hit a mountain and all 183 passengers were killed. Experts determined that the cause of the accident was pilot error. I would say so, I would say so. 
When I heard that story, I thought to myself, what a powerful illustration of the way that some people respond to the spiritual warning system in their lives. They say, all right, all right, shut up. And they flip off the switch. They ignore the information. The navigation system in the airplane knew reality because the radar was telling that navigation system reality. The radar saw the mountain. It knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the airplane was going to hit that mountain, and the radar system communicated that information to the navigation system, which kicked into gear, warning the pilot, terrain, terrain, pull up. And shockingly, the pilot ignored the information. This story serves as a helpful metaphor for the Christian life. Almost like a spiritual navigation system, the Holy Spirit is always at work in the Christian believer, communicating, guiding, directing, nudging, and sometimes even when necessary, kicking into warning mode, right? Brothers and sisters, the presence of the Spirit in your life is a tremendous gift. Tremendous gift. We need to understand the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our holiness. So we're in this series together that we've called The Pursuit. And if you have your bulletin and you want to pull that out, I'll remind you, if you're just joining us, you don't know this, but what we've been doing over the last month and a half, month and a week, is we've been exploring this biblical theme of holiness and the call of scripture into holiness. And we've learned some amazing truths about holiness. So in week one, we, we, we defined holiness in the simplest of terms. And we said, probably the most concrete way to understand holiness is that it's about the direction of your life. And we said holiness is really ultimately it's a moving towards God, moving away from sin and evil and brokenness and moving towards God. If you're going in that direction, you are growing in holiness. And in week two, we talked about how one of the keys of this growth is an inner transformation. The Bible uses the word metamorphosis. God is at work in your life wanting to transform you into that new creation where you don't just change on the outside, but change begins to happen inside and you become more and more and more like Jesus by God's grace. And then last Sunday, Christopher eloquently showed us the connection between a life of holiness and a life of love. And we've learned all these things, but there's one thing we've not talked about yet. And it's the role of the Holy Spirit in your growth in holiness. And that's what 1 Peter is going to tell us about. Will you read with me 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. Here's what Peter said to open his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ 
and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You read this intro to the letter and immediately you recognize that Peter wants us to see two things. The first thing he wants you to see is that God is 100% committed to your holiness. 100%. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together. I don't know if you noticed that in verse two, they're all there. The triune God working together to bring about what? Your holiness. So God the Father in his breathtaking foreknowledge has chosen you, elected you. God the Son ransomed your sin. He shed his blood on a cross to take away the penalty of sin so that you could be free and forgiven. And it is the Spirit who brings about your sanctification. You see that, which is just a, a way to say being made holy. And Peter says, right out of the gate, this is the theme of my letter, and this is the theme of this intro. I want you to realize this is priority, top priority for God, your holiness. Now, there's a challenging implication to this, and it goes like this. If sanctification is not my priority, but it is God's priority, then I should not be surprised if I find in my life that I'm constantly crashing against the shore of the will of God. Perhaps experiencing discomfort or setbacks in my life, pain, uncertainty, if my priority is not aligned with God's priority, I shouldn't be surprised if things are not going that well in my life. Because River West, Peter wants us to know 100%, do you know one of the top priorities of the triune God in your life? That you would grow in holiness. And here's the second thing Peter wants us to see. As an expression of this commitment, God has given us his spirit. whom the Apostle Paul calls the spirit of holiness, Romans chapter one, verse four. And in the Bible, most often refers to him as the Holy Spirit. It's such a priority that God has invested richly in this beautification process of your life by pouring out his Holy Spirit in you so that you would become transformed into greater and greater holiness. God has He's 100% in. He's given his spirit to you. And the primary function of the spirit in your life is to lead you and guide you and move you towards God, away from sin, towards God into ever-increasing holiness, like a navigation system in your life that guides and directs and speaks, sometimes warns. You know, I could summarize my entire sermon in one sentence. And it goes like this. If you want to grow in holiness, you need to continue learning how to follow the spirit of holiness. If you want to grow, and I hope you do, I hope as you're right now, you're thinking, I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. I don't want to be the same next week as I am right now. I want to move towards God. I want to become like Christ. I want to become more personally holy. If that is you, then what you need to do is you need to learn to follow the spirit of holiness. Learn how to listen for his voice. Learn to become sensitive to the way he guides. 
Learn how to remain open in your posture before him as he speaks and guides and directs. You know, sometimes the way the spirit leads, he's very gentle. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're in a situation and you sense very much a prompting, but it's, it's a gentle thing. Perhaps you're about to say something really dumb, you know, and you feel this sense of like, maybe I should not say that. You know, has that ever happened to you? I don't know. How well does that go for you if you ignore the Holy Spirit, right? Sometimes he's gentle. And sometimes he'll even gently say, hey, I want you to go talk to that person or, or walk into that situation. I want you to muster up the courage to speak in this moment. Have you ever found that sometimes you'll ignore that prompting? Why would we do that? Sometimes it's gentle and sometimes it's not gentle. <laughs> sometimes it's like a three alarm fire, right? and all the sirens are going off internally and all the lights are flashing and all the bells are blowing and you know, I am being warned right now, danger, terrain, pull up, turn away, go the other direction. Have you ever ignored that guidance from the Holy Spirit? So what we wanna learn we want to learn today. And you know who's going to be our teacher is the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. So I'll have you turn there now. Romans 8, I told you, this is where we'll be for our time together. And we're going to stay here because in Romans 8, Paul is going to get very specific. How does the Spirit lead? What does he lead you into? What does it mean to follow him? No one will leave this morning with with fuzziness about what you're supposed to do. You'll leave with clarity because Paul is crystal clear. Romans 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. Here's what he says. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Let me stop there. And I'll just tell you that Paul has been creating a contrast in this chapter He's been contrasting two ways to live. Paul says, one way to live is you can live according to the spirit, which is good. And another way to live is you can live according to the flesh. And what he means by the flesh is he means your old nature, who you were before Christ. He's talking about that old inclination to sin. Sometimes sin continues to creep in. Paul says you could live towards that, but that would not go well for you. Or you could follow the Holy Spirit and live according to the Spirit. And so he says, verse 9, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you notice the repeated word? I, I read it with emphasis. Did you notice it? It's the word dwells. Paul says, brother, sister, did you know that the spirit of holiness, the spirit of Jesus dwells in you. God is so committed to your spiritual growth that he has invested the most precious thing, his spirit. He's 
poured out his spirit and the relationship that you have with God's spirit is a relationship in which he lives in you. The word dwells, it means the spirit is permanently taken up residence in your life. He's not staying for the night, all right? He's not renting a room on Airbnb, okay? You can make a lot of money on that right now in the path of totality, apparently. But the spirit is not there for the weekend. The spirit's not there for the summer. The spirit is there permanently. And your relationship with the spirit does not mean that the spirit is above you. It does not mean that the spirit is out in front of you. It doesn't even mean that the spirit is near you or beside you. The spirit is actually in you, inside of you. Why would God do that? Because what God most wants to do in your life is he wants his Holy Spirit to bring into your life all of that love and all of that power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you see that? In verse 11, this is exactly what he says. If you'll look at it again, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is profound. The Holy Spirit is constantly infusing you with spiritual life and spiritual power. One of the things Paul is saying there is he's saying there will come a day where this, your body that's been broken by sin, it's mortal, it's wasting away. The spirit of the same spirit raised Jesus from the dead will give you a new resurrection body. You will be raised, but it's not all future. There is a present tense sense in which the spirit is at work in you speaking life and power. And you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes the spirit you can sense he's beginning to lead you and he's changing what you care about. He's changing what you love. He's changing your desires. Things that you used to like, you now have grown to dislike. You've seen the folly in them. See, the spirit doesn't always lead you away from things. Sometimes he leads you into green pastures and spiritual goodness and he changes your desires so that whereas before, perhaps when you were an, a younger Christian or, or immature, things you didn't really have a taste for, suddenly you begin to love them and see the value in them. Have you ever experienced that in your life? I remember when I was a young Christian, when I first came to Christ, I didn't really get the worship thing that much. I remember sitting in church and kind of looking around and going, I don't get it. It's sort of weird. You know, we're all sitting here singing and it's just kind of a strange thing. And it didn't help that we sang in this church that I grew up in this really, really cheesy song, okay, called I've Got a River of Life Flowing Out of Me. You know that song? Spring up, oh well, splish, splash within my... I sang that and I remember thinking, this is really strange, right? But then what happened was... God, by his spirit, began to work in my life. And I'll never forget the day I sang for the first time the song, Be Thou My Vision. You know that song? I sang Be Thou My Vision. And I remember thinking, I can get behind this song. This song is amazing. I can get behind the idea of calling out to God, God, you are my vision, lead me. And God began to change my desires. And he wants to change your desires and he wants to lead you. The Holy Spirit is a leader. Did you know that? He's a leader. Look at how Paul says it. Now, I left off at verse 
11, well, look with me at verses 12 to 14. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Holy Spirit is your leader. He wants to lead you and you want to learn how to follow him. And the leadership that Paul's talking about in this passage is a leadership into holiness. He wants to lead you away from sin and he wants to lead you closer and closer to God. You become more like Christ. The language that Paul uses in this passage is he uses the imagery of life and death. And there's this really interesting interchange between life and death in the passage. Did you see that in verse 13? It's a very important verse. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is a very, very profound sentence. Paul seems to be saying here that there is a a kind of life that actually leads to death. But then interestingly, there's a kind of death that actually leads to life. So Paul would say, if you, if you live according to your flesh, that might feel like life for a while. Because sometimes living in sin is fun and it feels enjoyable temporarily and there's instant gratification to it. But everyone knows that at the end of that road is, is death. There's brokenness in my relationship with God, a severed conscience and often even brokenness in the relationships that I care about the most. Paul says sometimes what seems to be the path to life is actually the path to death. But on the other hand, if you follow the Holy Spirit, he will lead you to true life. And sometimes that path takes you on a journey where you put something to death. And what Paul says the Spirit wants you to put to death is sin in your life. That's what he means by the deeds of of the body, Paul says, if you follow the spirit, he'll actually lead you to put to death sin in your life. Wow. That is pretty deep. What does it mean to put something to death in my life? In the Greek, the word means literally to execute or or to bring to, to die. Paul's saying this is the way the Christian needs to think about sin in their life. They need to think of it as a, almost like a war where I'm, trying to, I'm not just trying to ignore sin or pretend sin's not there or avoid sin. I actually go after sin by the leading of the Holy Spirit and I, and I attempt to put sin to death in my life. I've heard it said, sin is a lot like a weed, Right? If you care about the way your lawn looks, you'll appreciate this illustration, okay? Sin is a lot like a weed. If you don't get it out at the root, it's just gonna come back. And actually, it'll come back stronger. It'll come back with one of those balls that fly away and plant more weeds, right? You know, those horrible things that grow up. If you don't get it out at the root, it'll actually come back bigger and uglier. Paul says that's how you need to think about sin in your life. Last week, I, I went to my dentist and he, he said, Adam, you're going to have to have an extraction. I was like, that doesn't sound good. An extraction. He was like, yeah, you're going to have to have an extraction. So here's what's happened. 
I had a crown on top of a root canal and in, underneath that crown, some decay started to grow, which they couldn't see. And even though the, the, I'd had a root canal, so the tooth is dead, decay is still going down that root. Does this sound really fun to you? Because it doesn't sound fun to me and it's happening to me, all right? So the decay is going down and my dentist said, you got to get that out. We have to take out the roots or you're going to have problems. It's going to get to the nerve in your bone. He goes, but here's the thing. You have two choices, okay? You can do that procedure with me, but here's the thing. I don't have the laughing gas stuff. So if you do it with me, I'll numb you, but you'll be fully awake. So you're going to hear everything, smell everything and taste everything, okay? And then he said, or you can go to an oral surgeon who has the laughing gas. And I said, let me think about that. I'll go to the oral surgeon, okay? (laughs) I know where I'm going, but he's like, we got to go in. It's a three root tooth and we have to get every root out. Paul says, that is exactly what you have to do with sin. And you know, the Holy Spirit wants to lead you to do that. And do you know that you couldn't do it without the leadership of the Holy Spirit? It's never going to happen. It's not going to happen because it takes courage and it takes wisdom. Paul talks about this same concept in Colossians 3. Will you turn there with me? Keep your finger in Romans 8. What I want you to see is that this is not a one-off verse. This idea actually shows up in the New Testament a couple times, which is why we want to talk about it. Paul speaks in other places about how we have to put sin to death. So in Colossians 3 verse 5, He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put it to death. The the word is mortify. Some of the Puritans and some of our church fathers and mothers used to use the word mortification. They talked about the mortification of sin. And Paul says, this is exactly what you have to do. You have to put it to death. We hear that and it sounds almost like a form of masochism or something. It sounds super intense. Paul's not talking about inflicting uh, pain or, or damage on yourself. He's talking about what you do with your old nature that tries to creep in. Mortification is a spirit-led and spirit-empowered clear-sighted recognition of the sin that my old nature tends to still go after. It's clear-sighted and the spirit leads me. It means to recognize this sin, to name it as such, and then decisively to renounce it and reject it. And this process is to be so final and so radical that the only imagery that can do it justice is the imagery of putting something to death putting something to death, which is intense. And we don't talk about that a lot, but this is, what, this is how the scriptures tell us to think about our sin. You know, Paul names names, which is really interesting to me. I mean, if you keep reading in Colossians 3, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he, he names them. I mean, he gets specific, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. And you go, man, what a buzzkill. 
Paul? That's like a really intense, why do you have to be so intense? Why do you got to get super specific? And Paul's saying, because you got to name them. It's not going to be enough to just go to speak of sin in very vague terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I struggle with sin. Paul says, no, you got to get in, you got to identify it, and you got to give it a name. It's not enough for a guy who's struggling with a wandering eye to say, well, I just, you know, I appreciate the beauty of God's creation. Have you ever heard a guy say that? Like, God made beautiful things and I want to look at them. No, that's called covetousness. That's called sexual immorality to look at someone you're not married to, right? Or people say, well, I'm relational. I like to talk about other people. Well, actually, that's what we call gossip, right? And slander. And Paul says, give it a name. Give it a name. It takes courage. But there's a principle in here, and the principle is this. Sometimes in order to kill sin, you have to have the courage to call it what it is and give it a name. Over the last seven days, our country has been confronted with the ugly reality of the racism that continues in our society. And we watched in horror as the events in Charlottesville unfolded. And we experienced the grief of that. And then we experienced the confusion at times for things to be described with precision. But cutting through this ambiguity, there have been voices this week that have spoken with courage and with clarity about racism. And many of these voices are incredible Christian leaders and pastors, people that I respect. So, for example, Russell Moore, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, he wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post on Monday morning, and in that piece, here's what he wrote, and I quote, White supremacy does not merely attack our society, though it does, and the ideals of our nation, though it does. White supremacy attacks the heart and the values of Jesus Christ himself. This sort of ethnic nationalism and racial superiority ought to grieve every Christian, regardless of national, ethnic, or racial background. After all, we are not our own but we are a part of his church, a church made up of all nations, all ethnicities, every color united, not by blood and soil, but by the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ. Ray Ortland wrote to his church and said, the Bible says God created all of us in his image. And that means he made all of us to be royalty. And God saw what he made and he said, this is very good. Therefore, white supremacy is evil because it's saying that some are not royalty. Some are slaves. Pastor John Pavlovitz wrote, white people especially need to name racism in this hour. Because somewhere in that crowd of sweaty, dead-eyed, raw-throated white men were our brothers and cousins and husbands and fathers and children. 
and they need to be held accountable. They need to have a white face, speak into their white face and say, this grieves the heart of God. This is not the way of God. And here at River West, we stand with those voices. We stand with those voices. Last Sunday, Christopher spoke with eloquence about racism and I was proud to be here. And he led our church in a prayer for the victims in Charlottesville and I was proud to be here. But there's one more thing that we must say as a church family after we all mute our cell phones. (laughs) Isn't it interesting how the phones go off at the time where you really want a captive audience? (laughs) That's okay. There's one more thing we need to say together. Racism is real. Racism is evil. Racism is sin. And it grieves the heart of God. Amen? Amen. And there's one more thing we need to say. Because that's good, but here's the problem. Sometimes I am really good at discerning and calling out sin out there. But for some reason, I become far less discerning and blunt when the Holy Spirit leads me to see and name the sin in here. Isn't that interesting? It's like there are people who are, they pride themselves. I call a spade a spade. Have you ever heard of those people? I call a spade a spade. And that's good. But are you as blunt about calling a spade a spade when you're being called to name it in here? Whether it's racism or sexism or any other ism, whether it's abusiveness or addiction or anger or jealousy, the Holy Spirit would come into your life today and he would lead you and say, will you give it a name? Here's what you do. If you want to grow in holiness and you want to put sin to death, you pull it out. You you think of your life, look for a pattern, identify what it is, drag it out into the open and look at it face on. And then you give it a name. And as you name it and you see the ugliness and the danger of it, finally you will begin to hate it and you'll want to renounce it and you'll be able to put it to death by the grace and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. That's the key. You know, it's interesting. Satan loves to get us to envision what sin will be like at the beginning. Have you ever thought about this? Satan loves to get us to think about, oh yeah, what? that would be great. He, he, he wants you to think about the beginning and the middle. That's the fun part. But the Holy Spirit has the wisdom to get you to envision what sin will be like at the end. Because that's where all the damage happens. I read an article this last month that blew my mind. It was called Envision the End of Your Sin, written by a pastor named Garrett Kell. He was writing two pastors, and his theme was, he was brokenhearted about the number of pastors who have, who have walked into some kind of sin and demolished their ministries. 
And specifically in this article, he used sexual immorality or like an affair as his illustration. And he said, I want you to envision what the end of that sin will be like. And he he uses this fable and it's amazing. I'm gonna read it to you. Now, this is about a pastor who has who has destroyed his ministry, but you can, you can think about this in your own life and apply it to whatever you're struggling with. He says, pastor, envision yourself calling together your elders and sitting in their midst, telling them how you have betrayed their trust, see their sunken faces and feel their broken hearts. Listen to them, consider how they'll tell the church. Imagine the congregation's confusion and how it will affect those who've heard you say so often that Jesus is better than anything else. Imagine how the name of Christ will be mocked in your community and beyond. Then I want you to picture walking out to your car and getting in. Driving down the road near your house and circle your neighborhood a few times. Picture the place where you walked the dog with your children in the evenings. Now pull into the driveway and walk up to the door of your home. Hear the scampering of your children's feet running to you and putting their arms around your legs saying, Daddy's home. See the way they love and trust you. Drink that in deeply. Now tell them to go outside and play because you have to talk to mommy about something. As you walk to the kitchen where she's faithfully going about her day, Look at those smiling pictures on the wall and remember the happy days. Lead her by the hand to your bedroom where you used to make love and ask her to have a seat. Feel your heart scamper and the lump form in your throat. See her eyes ask what's wrong, then watch her weep as you tell her you've been unfaithful. Hear her wail, see her sob, feel her hit your chest and fall to her knees in despair. And he goes on. And you you can do that by the Spirit. See, Satan loves to get us thinking about the beginning and the end, but the Spirit has the wisdom to help us envision the end, the end. And he does it because he loves us. Now, do you know that in that intense parable, is one of the most profound pictures of grace that I can think of. Where God in his mercy by his spirit will get involved in your life before you've ruined yourself and say, alert, alert, terrain, terrain, pull up because he loves you. Are you listening? Are you you being led by him? I want to read a couple more verses of what Paul says in Romans, and I want to show you the the last and most important thing the Spirit wants to say to you as he leads you. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to worship together about it. But go back to Romans 8, and let's finish out this passage together, because Paul has one more thing to tell us about the Spirit. It goes like this, starting in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness 
with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You can go back and look at these verses, but can I ask you to look at your Bible and realize that every single verse, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all talk about the same theme, and the theme is this, you've been adopted. By the Spirit, God has taken an orphan who was not a part of his family and adopted you, and you are now a part of the family of God. And you're a brother and you're a sister, but it's even better than that. You are actually a son and a daughter of the living God. And the Spirit wants to assure you of that. And he's speaking constantly to you, assuring you, you are God's child. And you can cry out to him, Daddy, Abba, Father. And what happens when the Spirit tells us that is that we want to move towards God because he's our Father and we love him. And we want to be as close to him as we possibly can, which means we want to walk away from Sin And so hearing that from the Spirit is the key to growing in holiness. You'll want to grow in holiness because you'll want to move towards your Father. I, in the very first sermon on our series, I, I used an illustration of a little girl running towards the scariest man I've ever seen. You remember this story? I told you she was the cutest girl. She had these little pigtails and she was running across the food courts towards the meanest ugliest, baddest, biggest, most tatted and pierced human being I've ever seen in my life. And I wanted to stop her and go, no, your life is in danger. But as she ran towards this horribly unattractive guy, she cried out, daddy, daddy. And she jumped into his arms, right? And I said, you know what? God, God is big. God is, God is powerful. He's not even scary like that guy, but he's big and powerful. And you know what? He is your father. He's your father and he loves you. Maybe you didn't have a great earthly father, but you have an amazing heavenly father. And I pray that by God's spirit, you'll, you'll flee to him every day for his grace and his love and his joy. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray for you and Eric is going to come and lead us. Will you take a minute, bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the gift of your spirit. He is our leader. It's by your spirit that our hearts have been softened. It's by your spirit, Lord, that we've been born again. It's by your spirit that we have been renewed and made holy. And now it's by your spirit that we're growing in a progressive pursuit to be more and more like Jesus. And we thank you for it, Lord. I want to pray this morning, that as we walk out of the doors today, we would follow him and that we would grow in holiness, Lord. May we be the kind of people who are sensitive to him. Spirit, we want to commit in this moment as you lead us this week, as you speak through your word, 
that we would obey. If you warn, may we heed the warning. If you prompt, may we heed the prompting. May we be the kind of church community that's growing in holiness, the kind of church community that calls evil, evil, and good, good, the kind of community that brings a cup of cold water to the thirsty, a smile to the lonely. May we be like you, Jesus, as we go. And may it be all by the leading of your Holy Spirit, we pray. I want to pray for those this morning who are still on a journey in their Christian faith, that you would be loving and leading and speaking to them powerfully, Lord. Thank you that they're here. Praise you for it, Lord. Help us now to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.